James Lynch of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. With me today are Tom Barton of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. Amy Rivers of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, James. And Gazette Opinion Editor Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics wherever you find your podcast. First up today, Sand versus Reynolds in what may be an early look at the 2022 gubernatorial race. State Auditor Rob Sand said this week that Governor Kim Reynolds violated a state law that prohibits elected officials from spending tax dollars on self-promotion. Reynolds spent about $500,000, mostly federal CARES Act money, on a step-up, stop-the-spread public service announcement, encouraging Iowans to take steps to slow the spread of COVID-19. She appeared in the one-minute video for about 10 seconds. That violates a 2018 Iowa law that sought to force statewide officials and legislators to use campaign funds rather than taxpayer dollars for self-promotion. Democratic Treasurer Mike Fitzgerald, whose public service announcements seem to coincide with his re-election campaigns, appeared to be the target of legislative Republicans' protection of tax dollars. It was pointed out at that time that would also limit Republican Secretary of State's appearances in materials promoting voter registration and voting and could force Secretary of Agriculture Mike Nag's name being removed from official notices on gas pumps. Todd, uh, is this a taste of what's to come if Sand decides to run for governor, um, defeat by a thousand audits? Uh, I mean, he's he's already used his position as auditor to highlight some things he thinks are being done incorrectly by the the governor's office. Uh, I'm I'm sure if he runs for governor, he'll bring that stuff up. I don't know. You know, now that he's sort of declared his interest in it, he may have to be careful because you know, he'll be subject to sort of uh, the idea that he's using his office to campaign and, and, and its resources. And so he's got to be a little careful. Uh, I mean, basically, you know, it's a, it, was a, it was a dumb law when it was passed because the legislature is always at its worst when it's, you know, attempting to pass a bill that punishes one of their political opponents without thinking about the fact that it could be used at some point to to attack them as well. I mean, it, I, I understand the concern, you know, the great Iowa treasure hunt and the, and the treasurer, and he's been treasurer since what, like 68, 1950. I'm not, I'm not sure. He may have been Iowa's first treasurer. I, I, I don't know. But uh, I mean, so there was the concerns about that. And, and, you know, you did go to the state fair and they, they you know, the booths of the various elected officials did look very campaign like, but I mean, that's why, he tried to win elections because that's so I think it was, this was a, a law, a, an amendment passed that was bound to, to be interpreted. You know, there was bound to be sort of a fight over how it was interpreted at some point and it was going to be political. And, and so here we are, but uh, yeah, he's, he's going to use his office. He's going to use, you know, whatever they find as they do their auditing work. If it's in the Re- Reynolds administration, and something's wrong, he's, he's definitely going to highlight it. So are we likely to see the governor in handcuffs soon uh, on the campaign trail in an orange jumpsuit? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think so. Uh, even if, you know, there, there are, obviously there are differing views on whether she violated the law. Her allies say, no, there, there's an exception for emergencies and 
and Sands folks say, well, she didn't, she didn't put anything in her emergency orders making that happen. So uh, no, even if this were to be found to be unlawful, she's going to get probably a, a strongly worded letter from someone saying, don't ever do this again. Uh, but, you know, that's, uh, I don't know, an orange jumpsuit might be, might be interesting, but I, she'd have to just get that herself. It wouldn't come from like Polk County. <laughs> The Polk County Jail. <laughs> um, it, it almost seems like this is a case of where, uh, you know, she didn't say Simon says. So, you know, she, you know, it, I don't know. It, it, you know. She didn't invoke a law that she didn't need to invoke, according to the legal scholars on social media, yeah. um, who, who seem to be <laughs> in, in wide agreement that Sam doesn't know Jack about the law and his political stunt. Uh, fell flat. Um, however, I would caution against using the, I'm not a lawyer, but I read on social media arguments if you end up in court. Uh. <laughs> well, I think the, the weird thing is that, you know, this is a very nitpicky attack, obviously, but, you know, the, the better line of, you know, from a political standpoint, the better line is just basically, you know, what, what happened was that, you know, the governor didn't, you know, didn't do a mask mandate during all, much of the pandemic, sort of downplayed the need for it. Then, you know, when the surge hit and people were dying, she sort of scrambled once the election was over to try to cobble something together. And they did this, you know, ad that was, I don't think was terribly effective. And they spent $500,000 on it. I think that's probably the more effective criticism of what happened than this, you know, pointing out this, discrepancy with a very small, you know, part of the law that was either violated or not violated. Yeah, I, I it almost seems, I agree that it, it seems kind of nitpicky considering everything else that the governor did or didn't do uh, in response to COVID. Um, but it, it, it seems like this is just an opportunity for Sand to score points with who have already decided not to vote for Kim Reynolds' re-election. Um, I, I don't know that it changes anybody's mind if if they're out there trying to decide who to vote for, that no. say, well, she did. She didn't invoke a law saying that it suspended another law, and that's going to be the reason why they're going to vote for or against Kim Reynolds. But um, um, Sand uh, said this week that he's narrowing his options for his near-term political future. Amy, he told the Carroll Times Herald that he's ruling out a U.S. Senate bid, uh, but apparently still looking. Uh, at running for governor. Um, I'm guessing that he's among several Democratic, uh, potential Democratic gubernatorial candidates uh, who are, well, I shouldn't say gubernatorial candidates, I should say potential Democratic candidates who are waiting on Chuck Grassley to de- to announce what his plans are, and then they can decide which race to get into. Uh, <laughs> so... Um, but yeah, it appears that Sand is keeping his options open. Yeah. I mean, it, which is good. You know, it, if it turns out that, um, there's a ton of people that want to run for governor and not a ton of people that want to run for Senate, you know, maybe that changes the calculus a little bit. Um, but I think to Todd's point, you know, he really is trying to, um, I think position himself to do well in a democratic primary. So, you know, even if things like this, and of course, if you take the 10,000 foot view, what he's really arguing, 
um, is that he doesn't think that the governor should have spent taxpayer money to basically try in her way to to slow down the coronavirus um, pandemic. You know, whether you think stop the spread worked or not, arguably, you know, it didn't. Um, she's still trying something. And so it's it's a very interesting argument that he's making that she shouldn't have done that, you know, regardless of the, the nitty gritty in there. Um, but I think what he's really doing, and Tom and I were talking about this before the podcast, is just positioning himself for that primary. You know, if, if he can um, continue to harp on Governor Reynolds, um, he can put himself in people's minds as the person that's doing that. And then when Democrats go to the polls for the primary, he's one of the, the top ones. And all the other candidates that are going to want to go for that um, Democratic primary then have to overcome that. And of course, he's in a very high profile position, as you mentioned. Um, he's able to sort of do this um, either under the guise of his job or at least with some resources there. Um, so he's he's really positioning some himself pretty well for a primary run now in a general election, I don't think issues like that are going to work. I think Todd's right. You really have to focus then on the overall picture. How did Reynolds do among the coronavirus pandemic? And of course, we know from polling the entire last year that nobody thought she was really doing a very good job on that. So I think that is really going to have to be something that it gets hammered in the general, no matter what Democrats on the ticket. And there are a ton. I mean, you, you pointed out that there's a, a lot of people that are either openly mulling runs or, or, more likely privately mulling runs. Um, so even people like um, Representative Roz Smith, who's a relatively new representative up in our area in Northeast Iowa, um, could potentially be mulling a run, um, is positioning himself at least to be in a good position for that. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how that gubernatorial primary shakes out on the Democratic side. According to a couple of... Um... Republicans who um, explained this whole situation to me yesterday. Um, the, the background on this is that some Democrats don't think Rob Sand is tough enough or aggressive enough to take on Kim Reynolds. And so this is his attempt to show that he is tough enough. Um, if, if that is indeed his <laughs> calculus here, I'm not sure that, it, that this showed toughness. Uh, or aggressive, maybe aggressive nuts, but I'm not sure that uh, it was tough enough or or all that effective based on, on the reaction. And, and maybe that's a general election problem. You know, I, I don't I don't think necessarily yeah. Democrats are are considering that calculus in the same way. Yeah. Speaking of general elections and elections in general, um, the election law changes Iowa Republicans push through the legislature appear to already be having an impact. A little notice changed in the law. Davenport Senator Robbie Smith floor managed seems to have paved the way for Scott County supervisors, at least the Republicans, to select a new county auditor of their choosing. Unless Democrats can get about 10,000 signatures on a petition for a special election, the supervisor's appointment will stand until the next election. Um, I guess the reasoning for making that appointment is that the special election would be costly and attract low voter turnout. Tom, so why is this a, a big deal in Scott County? Yeah, so uh, Scott County, or I guess county boards of supervisors in general, or you know, city councils have long had the option of filling a vacancy either by appointment or special election. Um, and should they choose to, to make an appointment, which has been standard practice for at least the last 30 years, um, both by majority Republican and majority Democrat, um, Scott County boards, voters could still petition to force a special election. 
Um, and as you mentioned, uh, James, the Republican majority county board on a party line vote opted uh, against the special election out of concerns for its um, cost and efficiency and appointed a Republican who's a former Davenport alderwoman as a new county auditor. Um, the party line decision drew a rapid response from Iowa Democrats. And as you mentioned, the party is trying to collect more than 10,000 signatures to force a special election. What's new in this case is that voters now have a steeper hill to climb to force an election. So among you know the recent myriad changes um, that were made uh, to state election law by state house Republicans was this little notice change kind of tucked into the omnibus elections bill, which um, significantly shortens the window that voters have to gather valid signatures. Voters now have 14 days from when the appointment is made to circulate and file a petition with the county auditor requesting a special election. And any signature gathered prior to the date of appointment is not considered valid before voters could begin collecting signatures for a petition after supervisors voted to choose to make an appointment as opposed to a special election before they actually appoint someone to the seat. So now county Democrats have two weeks together, roughly um, 9,300 valid signatures or about 10% of Scott County voters who voted for, um, for president in 2020. But I guess more importantly, the biggest difference is kind of the drama and partisan moves surrounding the sudden vacancy in a job overseeing elections in Iowa's third most populous county, one that had long been viewed as you know quiet and nonpartisan and now is becoming more contentious in this political fight occurring across the country about trust in the nation's elections, um, you know, due to Republican former President Donald Trump's persistent and false claims of widespread fraud costing him uh, the, the 2020 election. So uh, just a little bit of background. Democrat Roxana Moritz abruptly retired in April, five months after being reelected in 2020. Out of concerns over actions by state lawmakers and county supervisors, she said, would make the job more difficult. And after months of personal attacks and threats from Republican voters upset by Trump's defeat, uh, to Democrat Joe Biden, accusing her of fixing the 2020 election, even though Trump easily won Iowa. Um, and then it was, you know, under that backdrop that uh, Republican state lawmakers passed legislation to impose fines or criminal penalties on election officials for violating rules. You know, officials now face a fine of up to $10,000 for a technical infraction of election rules as part of that new law. Um, and, you know, that has made the line of work unpalatable, um, uh, according to, to Moritz, the former um, county auditor. Do you think that Robbie Smith had this coup in mind uh, when he wrote that law, or when I should I say when he and Heritage wrote the law? Um, is this what they had in mind? Um, it's, uh, it's unclear, but the timing of it, you know, coinciding with um, Moritz announced retirement, and after Smith inserted a provision in the bill tailored to resolve a potential conflict by a Republican Scott County supervisor, allowing him to continue to serve simultaneously on the county board and, and the North Scott School Board. You know, so, so given his, his intervention there and tucking you know, something in the bill specifically to address that you know, county level issue, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case, but um, you know, whether Smith definitively had, you know, a, a coup in mind, it's it's not immediately clear. Will, will Democrats get the signatures they need to force a special election? Uh, it seems doubtful. 
So uh, either on Tuesday or Wednesday, kind of toward the start of the week, Democrats had about 2,000 uh, signatures out of a required roughly 9,300 signatures with a little more than a week left um, to, to, to gather signatures. And so, you know, 9,300 signatures in two weeks just seems like a lot of signatures to gather in a short amount of time when not many voters are paying attention to or probably aware of what's going on with the Scott County Auditor vacancy. And, and frankly, they may not care. Um, you know, as I said before, it's a position that until now had long been viewed as quiet and nonpartisan. And, you know, more it's the Democratic incumbent who stepped down was unopposed in 2016 and 2020. So I think it's probably going to be difficult for Democrats to, you know, get voters to, to kind of care about this enough to, you know, go out and sign a petition. Do, do they have a candidate if it goes to a special election or uh, is that sort of the next challenge for Democrats? Um, that's the next challenge. You know, I, I've been told that, um, that, you know, officially, you know, they, they don't have a candidate. And right now they're just focusing on the, the petition drive um, and, you know, realizing that that's going to be. Um, you know, a, a, a tough road to, to hoe or a, you know, steep hill to climb, you know, choose whatever analogy one you, you want to use or cliche. Um, so yeah, officially they're saying they're, they're, they're just focusing on the petition drive right now and realizing that they probably have a 50, 50 chance of being successful. And then if they are, that's when they'll kind of focus on a candidate. <clears throat> okay. Well, sticking with cliches, uh, where's the beef? And it wasn't at the slaughterhouse this week. Right. JBS, the world's largest meat supplier, was hit with a ransomware attack that caused uh, shutdowns and work stoppages at some of its 150 plants around the world, including in Marshalltown. Uh, at the same time, Governor Reynolds, uh, when she wasn't appearing in PSAs, I guess, signed on to a letter with other Midwestern governors asking for an investigation into possible antitrust violations among JBS and the other four big beef packers who control 85% of the beef industry. Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, of course, has been complaining about concentration in beef packing for some time. Amy, uh, Representative Ashley Hinson was in Waterloo this week. Has uh, she joined the concentration chorus? Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, we think of Republicans as, as, as traditionally being for um, business, for free markets. Um, that sort of thing. So it's really something that they've they've traditionally stayed out of um, and sort of rejected antitrust. Now we're really seeing that change recently. Obviously, um, the tech companies were really their ire first, but you're really also seeing. I think you know you've got JBS, Cargill, um, Tyson. I'm forgetting the the fourth one. Control, like you said, 85 percent of the market, um, and that has ramifications for Iowa farmers and producers and raisers of beef cattle. We saw that during the pandemic. We're seeing that during, you know, these ransomware attacks, which if you read about like the technology they have at these beef packing plants, it's 30 years old. It's very open to ransomware, like from anybody, 14 year olds, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so it's a problem and it's a big problem if you take one of those companies offline when four of them control the vast majority of, of the things. And there's not enough small packing companies out there to take on the load. We saw this with the pandemic um, when they had to shut down supply. So it's really a food security problem. It's a farm problem. It's a, it's a farm producer problem. So Ashley Hinson is absolutely saying, yes, we need to take a look at this. Um, 
and and she said she and Grassley co-signed on to a letter, in fact, um, encouraging this investigation as well. So it's really interesting to see one of the few bipartisan shining stars happens to be maybe antitrust legislation going forward. And of course, um, Biden actually appointed um, a couple different uh, people that are thought to be very antitrust to his, um, you know, different agencies. So there could be movement on this. I think um, these companies are probably really going to step up their lobbying at the very least, if not really start to put out statements that are like, hey, you know, to, because I think they're <laughs> under threat right now. But will the the anti-big tech and the anti-big meat uh, forces uh, come together? Uh, to act? I mean, how much how much leverage do uh, Grassley and Henson and the Midwest governors have uh, here? I think if they get Democrats on board and traditionally Democrats have been antitrust, then you really see this issue explode. Um, and maybe I'm just reading all of these crazy antitrust articles, but it really does seem like it's a, it's a watershed moment at this point. I would not at all be surprised um, to see antitrust even be an election issue as far as, you know, all of these companies, all of these mergers happening that are just, and the supply is being felt by people. You look at wood prices right now, you look at how meat prices were and how they could be, you know, in the next couple of weeks, um, the supply shortages, people are feeling this intimately in their own grocery shopping and they're in their own home buying. This could be a big issue. So you're suggesting that we could see uh, a Chuck Grassley, Bernie Sanders, uh, <laughs> antitrust legislation moving through the Senate. Wouldn't that be something? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, the last forced breakup of a major industry, I think, was when the courts uh, uh, broke up Ma Bell into the AT&T and regional telephone companies, which uh, I think has worked out well for consumers uh, over the long term. Um, Todd, uh, the ransomware attack uh, is, if nothing else, a distraction from the concentration concerns. Uh, however, it doesn't seem that if a cyber attack can disrupt a company that processes a quarter of the country's beef, uh, maybe concentration is a problem. And uh, as Amy said, maybe um, Congress should take up, should look at breaking up the meatpacking industry, not only to make it more competitive, but to, to for food security reasons. Yeah, I, I, it is a problem. And it's been a problem for a long time. And I guess I'm hopeful that something happens now, although... My skepticism is fed by the fact that this has come up several times in the past. I think I've heard Grassley many times over the years talk about how this is a problem and something needs to be done and the government needs to look at it. Uh, but but nothing much has happened. I, I don't know how you break up a company like JBS that's that's based in Brazil. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how you go down to Sao Paulo and, and get them to, you know, slice themselves up like a like a like a hog. <laughs> I guess, mm-hmm. lacking a better, you know, it's a good metaphor, but uh, it just, it hasn't, it hasn't happened. And on the, and then on the other side of the coin, you know, in Iowa, we've been extremely accommodating to the creation of a livestock production system, particularly with hogs that is needed to basically feed these giant corporations, the, the flow of livestock, they need to get bigger and bigger. So on the one hand, we're concerned about, you know, antitrust and these big meatpacking companies, but we've got no problem, you know, having the state become home to, 
you know, 3 million people and 30 million hogs and uh, that are being produced on a scale that makes large corporate meat packing and meat processing possible. So it's a complex problem and just pointing at the big conglomerates and saying that the, you know, that they're, they cause a fragile food system is correct, but it goes, you know, it's also the production system that we've embraced, the farming systems that we've embraced and the environmental degradation that's come with that. So yeah, antitrust is one, one, I guess, tentacle of a, this, you know, giant problem. Well, it, it, it also seems to, that part of the problem is that companies like JBS um, basically own the production from yeah. start to finish. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, quote unquote farmers out there who are really working for JBS and other large meat packers. Uh, if the meat packing industry gets broken up, what happens to those farmers? Um, you know, do they have to go out and actually buy their own hogs and, and uh, facilities to, to raise them? Or, or will no. they still be able to, you know, be a contractor uh, for JBS? Or you'll see all these community packing houses spring up. I don't know. That would take years, if not decades, though, to really get that infrastructure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, it would be a return to those good old days, I guess. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> where, yeah. Yeah. I suppose if you, if you break up the companies, at least you might, instead of having only five choices for who you're going to raise hogs for, maybe you have 10 and maybe that, you know, puts some competitive, you know, some pressure on to pay higher prices. But I mean, yeah, that's, a uh, from a, I, I can't even imagine the, the litigation that would have to take place to have that happen. <laughs> I mean, I, I wonder if I'd still be alive by the time they figured yeah. it out <laughs> well <laughs> if it happens we'll probably talk about it on a future edition of on iowa politics but that's it for today uh if you enjoy the podcast tell a friend and subscribe to us wherever you like podcast send your fan mail to podcast and you can find us on the home pages of the quad city times sioux city journal muscatine journal mason city set Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Johnny on Point will take us out. And if you know an Iowa band or musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file and subscribe to our podcast. Tom, Amy, Todd, and our producer, Katie, I'm James Lynch. Thanks for listening. Stay well. Stay well.